Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, we are working our way through this series called Shadows of Christ. And uh, we are walking through the Old Testament, basically looking to see, um, like every good story, how the main themes, the hero of the story, the central conflict, and the resolution are all foreshadowed um, in the initial stages of the story. Um, every good story basically prepares the reader for the climax because there's an integrity to the entire story. There's a sense in which the, the, uh, the shadows of the culmination fall at the beginning. And, and, and that is the scripture. Um, and, and, you know, I never stop actually being amazed. I mean, the Bible is, is a remarkable book. You guys hear me say this a lot, but it really is. I mean, you're talking about a book that uh, 66 different books, over 40 authors written over 2,000 years, three different languages, and yet it tells a single story. I mean, it's a remarkable thing. It's not a loose collection of random stories. It is not simply a bunch of, of fables and um, moral, you know, uh, sayings. It is, it is a progressive story. You couldn't have done this if you had wanted to. You couldn't have produced a book like this, even if you had the best project manager on the face of the earth. Um, you needed somebody who was, in fact, shaping the progress of human history. Somebody knew where things were going in order to foreshadow them thousands of years before they occurred. And so it's an amazing thing for us to be able to dig into the Old Testament, um, look at the story, um, and, and also in that story see foreshadowings of, of what is to come. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. We're getting into a, an interesting text this morning dealing with uh, Moses and the law and, and um, the nation of Israel. Before we dig in, um, I wanted to pause and just let you guys in on, on, on a celebration, a win. Um, there's a um, a young woman named Talia that we have been walking with. Um, uh, some of you know her. Some of you have, have connected with her at the um, SIUE, at the, at the Cougar Village Bible Study, or uh, met her at Affordable Christmas, or um, connected with her at, at the, uh, the barbecues that we do over at SIUE. Um, uh, but she has been working toward getting a nursing degree, which is an incredibly challenging degree and um, uh, for a single mom and kids and and, and some of you have come alongside her and helped her. Um, it's been a real privilege to see people get excited about that. Some of you have helped with child care. Some of you helped her move off campus uh, to her, her current house. Some of you have done other things. And, and we as a whole church, in fact, actually came alongside her and helped her 
um, get some uh, uh, training that would help her actually pass the boards. As, as some of you know in that field, man, the, the nursing boards are very, very challenging. Well, here's the good news I just wanted to share. She passed this week. I just found out. So she has um, passed, and, and she will be able to move into her profession and be able to provide for her kids. And, and um, she wasn't able to be here this morning. But, you know, I just, this is a win. So if you wouldn't, let's just do it. Yeah. I mean, it's a win for her. Um, and it's a celebration for us to, to be able to come alongside and just share in her joy. Okay. It's just very, very cool. All right. So we're digging into our text this morning. Um, so we're going to be looking at the law and Moses and all the rest of that. So I want to start out with this question. How are you guys doing with your New Year's resolutions? You're like, why'd you bring that up, dude? Uh, it, we're six months into the year. I don't know if you realize that. We're, we're halfway through 2013. And so it's a good time to revisit all those promises you made to yourself back in January, right? So how are you doing on your beach body? You ready? You looking good, right? The weather's not really cooperating, but we're here, right? Summer's here. Um, you know, every year around the end of the year gives us an opportunity to kind of poke fun at New Year's resolutions. And we do because we all know that, that you know, every, you know, for some reason, it's just our cultural cycle. At the end of the year, we set goals and we're going to fix everything and Usually it takes about two weeks, sometimes up to two months. But by this time of the year, you've already given up on last year. You're already looking toward, you know, I've got six more months before I have to do that thing again, right? Um, but here's the thing. I'm, I am all for resolutions. I really am. I, I poke fun at them, but they, they really are good. I, we all have, let's just be honest, we all have self-improvement projects, don't we? I mean, we all have things where we're trying, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, don't you, wanna, don't you want to end the year wiser than you started it? Don't you want to be better educated than you were? Don't, don't you want to be healthier? Don't you want to be more well-rounded, right? There's nothing wrong with self-improvement projects. I'm all for them. In fact, I think we should have them. In fact, I think we should probably get even more organized and actually have goals and work toward those goals. I, I think that's a good thing. The problem is this, you guys. We tend to take our self-improvement projects and turn them into self-salvation projects. Those are two very different things. We tend to take our self-improvement projects and turn them into self-salvation projects. What do I mean by that? Well, our self-improvement projects are things that we're doing to try and make life more enjoyable, more fulfilling, so that, so that we can engage life uh, more intelligently and more fully and, and experience the fullness of life um, with more joy, right? I mean, that's, that's self-improvement. Self-salvation projects, see, what we do is we take these things we're doing to improve life we start using those things to justify life. We start looking to those things as the things that are going to help me measure up. When I finally get this thing, then I'll be worthwhile. When I finally achieve this goal, then I will be able to respect myself. Then I will feel good about myself. Then people will look at me and know that I'm successful. Then, then, then. So what we're doing is we're taking these self-improvement projects and turning them into self-salvation projects, things that are ultimately going to justify our existence. And, and um, what we're trying to do with these things ultimately is try to tip the, the cosmic scales in our favor. We all have this sense that there are cosmic scales. In fact, that's a metaphor that comes up a lot when I, when I talk to people, you know, this sense that there's just this weighing out uh, of life, right? And, and so we do these things we improve ourselves, we, we do good works, we, we try to stop doing some of these bad things that we know, and, and we start trying to do other good things that are, and we do this, trying to tip the cosmic scales so that, you know, if we get those things to tip enough, we can feel better about ourselves, we can feel more comfortable with ourselves, we can feel more justified, we can feel like, like 
um, were, were worthwhile, right? And, and, and that's, a, that's a human thing. That's a very human condition. And in fact, that's, when you look at most world religions, that's essentially what's going on. Most world religions essentially say, do this to measure up. Stop doing this so you won't be condemned, right? Start doing this, stop doing this. And, and if you do it well enough, you might be approved. You might just make it. But you've you got to work. You've got to really put some effort in, right? Um, well, here's the deal, you guys. God in this passage does something kind of weird. He seems to reinforce that impulse of our heart. He's going to give a law. And basically in that law, he's going to say, if you do it, you'll, you'll be approved. And if you don't do it, you'll be condemned, which seems to reinforce that, that central thing we believe, that if, that if I'm just good enough, then I'll measure up. But here's the thing. As, as we really look at this passage, what I want to explore with you this morning, where we're going, is I want to show you that, that God gave us the law to give us clarity so that that clarity could lead us to despair. And then out of that despair, he could point us to hope. So that's kind of the, that's where we're going this morning. Okay, he gave the law to, to give us clarity, and out of that clarity, that that, that that would ultimately lead us to despair, and out of that despair, he's going to point us to hope. So let's talk about the passage a little bit. Our passage is a little bit farther in history than last week. Last week, we talked about Abraham and Isaac. We looked at how Abraham, the great father, was promised a son. He waited until he was 100 years old. The son of promise was given to him, um, and then God tested him, right? And um, Isaac grew up to be uh, a strong young man. He had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And, uh, and then Jacob grew up, and um, I'm covering a lot of history here. And then Jacob grew up and, and um, had this encounter, this weird encounter with God, and he was renamed Israel. He was given a new name, and he had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became what are known today as we refer to them as the 12 tribes of Israel. That, that became the, the beginning, in a sense, of, of the, the nation of Israel, right? It came through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, Israel, and to the 12 sons. Um, those 12 sons got along great. They loved each other and they were the perfect family. Not, right? That didn't, yeah, that's not, that's nobody's family. Um, they decided that they really didn't like Joseph. Joseph was this one that just seemed to be a little special and a little off and being special and off, they wanted him out. And so they beat him up, threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery in Egypt and told their dad that he was dead. Um, many, many, many years later, there's famine in the land. And uh, they're facing starvation. They go to Egypt trying to find food. Um, they're desperate. They find their brother Joseph there. Um, God had Joseph on his own path, and, and Joseph had risen in prominence in Egypt and was now, in fact, in the Pharaoh's court, uh, a trusted advisor. And he was able to take care of his family and provide for them. And so they moved. They all moved to Egypt, uh, and they were taken care of. They had food, and they had influence, and, and it was all great. And, in fact, they prospered. God prospered. That, that little tribe, and they became a clan, and that clan became a nation. And as they grew, they became threatening to the Egyptians. The Egyptians saw their prosperity, saw their growth, and uh, became threatened by them, so they enslaved them. And uh, by the time we get to Moses, their life is pretty bad. Um, they live basically um, just to fulfill the labor demands of the Egyptians. They are um, beaten and... Um, uh, it's just rough. It's really rough. And, um, and so God commissions Moses to basically set them free. 
And um, again, jumping a lot here. Some of you know, you know, the Moses floated down the river in the reed basket and all that. We're not going there. I'm just, we're jumping ahead. Moses basically is commissioned by God and, and, and is told, all right, I want you to go to Pharaoh, tell, tell him to let my people go. So Moses goes and, and comes into the courts of Pharaoh 10 times. He says, let, God says, let my people go. 10 times Pharaoh said no. 10 times God brought a plague <clears throat> on the nation of Egypt. Each plague was specific to an Egyptian god, basically God demonstrating that he was superior to the gods of the Egyptians, that he was, in fact, one to be obeyed. Finally, Pharaoh relents, releases the Israelites. They leave. Pharaoh changes his mind. While they're crossing the Red Sea, Pharaoh tries to chase. God judges them. They're all destroyed. That brings us to our passage. The Israelites are now between Egypt and Canaan. They've left Egypt, but they haven't yet arrived at Palestine, the promised land. And along the path, they stop at this mountain, Mount Sinai, and something really kind of interesting happens at this mountain. God is going to invite them <clears throat> to make a contract. So take a look at verse, uh, chapter 19. I just want to look at verses 4 through 8. And this is God speaking to Moses now. And, and Moses is going to speak to the people on behalf of God. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you out on eagles' wings. So he's referring to what he just did to deliver them. And I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. Now, I want you to notice that what we have here is the beginning of a covenant or a promise or a contract. But it's not just like Abraham's promise. You remember Abraham's promise? God said, I will do this for you. It was what's called an unconditional covenant. This is a conditional covenant. He begins not by saying, I will do this for you. He begins by saying, if you will do this. So pay attention to what the terms of the, of the covenant are. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So your side of this deal, Israelites, is to do what I tell you. I'm going to give you some rules. All you got to do is obey them, right? So I'm going to give you some rules. You obey them. That's your part of the covenant. My part is this. Once you obey, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. You'll be unique among all of humanity. All the earth is mine, but you will be a treasured possession. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, priests, remember, are people that stand between man and God. They are liaisons. They don't have any special authority. They are just people that... that play that role of intercessor, right? So saying to the nation of Israel, you guys will be my priests. You will represent humanity to me and, and I will speak to humanity through you in the same way that Moses is in a sense a priest for the nation of Israel at this point. He's, he's acting as that liaison, right? You're going to be a holy nation. The word holy means set apart, right? So, so he's saying you're going to be set apart from all the people groups for a special um, relationship with me and, and I'm going to pour my blessing out on you and and, and through you, the blessing will go to others as, as I operate through you with humanity. And then he says, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together. And I just want you to notice that all the people went and prayed about it. All the people went and thought about it. All the people debated. All the people looked at the terms. That, no, all the people answered together. I mean, it's just like, bam. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Sounds like a good deal to me, right? Sounds like a good deal to me. You, you go ahead and give us some rules. We'll obey them. 
and then you're going to pour your blessing out on us. I mean, that just sounds like a great situation, right? And so God's like, cool, we'll just start with 10 commandments. How's that? We'll just start with 10. How hard is 10, right? 10, that's not very many, right? Some of you are like, well, we only had five. Like I was a teacher, we only had five. Yeah, but you know that under each of those five was like three more, right? So it was like 15. This is just 10, right? 10 commandments. Now, I'm not going to assume you're familiar with them. I'm going to go ahead and put them up on the overhead. And we're going to go ahead and put them in old English because every time you talk about the commandments, for some reason, you always have to start with thou shalt. I don't know why. That just is everybody, when you think about the Ten Commandments, that's where you start. So let's just kind of look at this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Israelites, huh? All right, that means we can't have Chemosh or Baal or, or any of those other. Yeah, we don't like them anyway. Cool. We're good with that. Number two, thou shalt make unto me under the no graven images. Hmm. So I can't carve stone and wood and make metal objects. All right. Yeah, I don't think I'll do that. Okay. Three, thou shalt not use Lord's name in vain. Essentially what that means is, is you won't take God's name, Yahweh, um, and rob it of its authority and respect. So you won't move forward in my name as my people bearing, um, um, kind of representing me without actually being conscious of the fact, you, you know, if you do it in vain, what you're doing is robbing the name of its power. You're robbing his, his, his presence from the, the, the name which identifies him. Okay, yeah, we won't do that. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. That's when you read in Genesis, and that's where Sabbath came from. It's this, this idea of the seventh day. So on Saturday, the Israelites wouldn't work. It was a day set apart. It was holy. That's what it means, set apart. Um, for God. And, and so they would do all their work in six days. And on the seventh day was a day of, of rest in the same way that God rested on the seventh day. Cool. Yeah, we can do that. Number five, honor thy father and thy mother. All right. Sometimes they can annoy me, but I can honor them. Number six, thou shalt not kill. Okay. Oh, that one's going to be hard. It's that guy at work. All right. I won't kill him. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Mm. Right. Thou shalt not steal. This is getting rough. Number nine, thou shalt not bear a false witness. So you don't lie to people in court or about people in personal relationships, huh? And number 10, thou shalt not covet. That means have lust for or or a greedy intention for thy neighbor's house, wife, or possessions. Hmm. All right, 10. How hard can 10 commandments be, you guys? Seriously, 10 rules. That's all they are. Keep the 10 rules, get God's blessing. I mean, that just kind of sounds like a good deal. And in fact, it makes sense. It makes sense to us on a lot of levels. And I'll tell you why, because that's actually how we think about approaching God. Every human. This is like the default mode of the human heart. If you know what I mean by that? Like, like when your computer crashes and it comes back up at the blue screen and everything gets defaulted. When you get set back to default mode, the human default mode is I have to work to earn God's favor. I have to do the right things and stop doing the wrong things, and then God will like me, right? So, so this fits very well with, with how we're already wired. This, this makes sense, right? And we see this not just in our own hearts. We see it in culture all the time. Uh, there's this new movie out, uh, The End of the World. I don't know if that's the title of it, but it's all these famous guys, and, and it's this, this um, end of the world thing. And I was listening to NPR, and they were actually interviewing some of the actors that were in the movie, and and um, one of the guys was like, yeah, we tried as, as much as we could to base this movie on the things in the book of, of Revelation. And uh, so it perks my ears up. I'm like, all right, well, you know, and he's, he's saying, yeah, because what ends up happening is, is this blue light comes down and, and all the good people are taken out. 
right? All the worthy people are taken out and everybody else is left and everything turns to chaos and, and, and a big uh, bottomless pit opens up in, in front of James Franco's house and, and we're having this huge party and we just try not to fall in and, and, and then we have to struggle with, man, we've been left behind. So uh, now that we've been left behind, what do we do? Well, it's not hopeless for us because there's still a chance we can still make ourselves worthy. Those are his words. We can still make ourselves worthy. That is how we think about approaching God. God is drawn toward those who are worthy. God loves who make, the people who make themselves worthy. And that's why we're desperately trying to make ourselves worthy. Because when we feel like we're doing good enough, when we're working hard enough, when we have it together enough, God just likes us more. We like ourselves more. We feel more in tune with ourselves and with the world, more like we have it together, right? So keep these 10 commandments. Go ahead, measure up, be worthy. God will accept you, right? Now let's just pause for a minute. How hard are these commandments? Like if you were to give yourself a, a grade, just looking at these 10, how you doing? Um, honor thy father and thy mother. You ever dishonored them? You ever thought as a teenager, evil thoughts? <laughs> you ever said disrespectful things? What about um, thou shalt not kill? Ah, I got that one. I haven't killed anybody. Yeah, but have you ever killed anybody in your heart? Have you ever rejoiced to see someone suffer and in pain because you disliked them so much? Hmm. Do not steal. Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Have you ever said anything bad about somebody and taken their reputation? Thou shalt not fear false witness. Have you ever lied? Thou shalt not covet. You ever looked at your neighbor's house? I wish it was yours. You ever looked at someone else's car? You ever looked at someone else's reputation? You ever looked at someone else's success? And in your heart, secretly coveted, secretly lusted for, wanted it. Even to the point where you were happy if they lost it because you couldn't have it. Because they were jerks and they didn't deserve it anyway. Does this describe anybody? Does this sound familiar? You guys, we can't keep one of these commandments. Let's just be honest. Well, I've never made a graven image. Really? You've never looked to anything that wasn't God to be God for you, to do for you what only God can do? You've never looked to your reputation to make you significant and worthwhile instead of God's favor towards you? See, we do this all the time, you guys. We, we are continually breaking the Ten Commandments. We can't keep one of them. The best we can do is try and manage our hearts. We can't change them. And, and, and that's the challenge, you guys. Right? We get these Ten Commandments, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we end up doing is finding that the best, we, the best we can do is try to dig a moat around the bad stuff in our hearts to try and keep it contained. We can't actually get in there and change it. And we call it a success if we can just keep it within the moat. If it just doesn't cross that line, if we can just keep it in the cage, that's a win, right? But here's the challenge, you guys. God doesn't grade on a curve. The covenant doesn't say, as long as you're better than everyone else at keeping these, then you're good. As long as you're on the bell curve, like on the upper percentage, right? What the law says is if you violate one, you violate it all. It's an all or nothing deal. 
you break one commandment, you lose the entire blessing. And to lose the blessing is actually to gain the curse, as, as God explains later with the Israelites. There are only two results of this covenant. You either get the blessing or you get the curse. There's no middle ground. So it's bad news. They don't see that, though. What they're looking at are the Ten Commandments, and they're like, man, this makes sense to us. We can do this. But God knew they weren't going to keep it. In fact, you can see that in the story itself. The first Ten Commandments are, in fact, just the first. They're like the cliff notes for the full novel. The novel comes later. Um, The Israelites see about 613 different commands. Um, And so the first 10 are like the summary. And the 613 kind of break out underneath them and kind of explain what those Ten Commandments are. Um, There's a lot to come. And, And the reality is, even if it was just the 10, they would be no better off. And that's why God, even as He gave them the commandments, also gave them the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system came along and said, all right, here's the commandments, you need to keep them. When you break them, you have to kill these animals, which sounds really weird to us, but what it did, it reminded them that there was a penalty to every, whenever they broke the law, there was a penalty that had to be born, and that penalty was death. Not, not, not temporary discomfort, not a timeout, not, a, not a, 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 a fine, death. And so God built into the very system a reminder that they weren't going to be able to keep it and that that he was, in fact, going to give a substitute. It's a life or death deal, and, and <laughs> I'm not very confident, God's saying, that you're going to be able to get life out of this. So I'm going to build something in the sacrificial system that reminds you and keeps me from having to strike you dead immediately. So why did God give the law? If he knew they couldn't keep it, if he knew that it was just going to, in fact, feed their uh, false perception of how to approach God, that they could earn their way into God's presence. If he knew that, why did he give it to him? Was this like a, uh, you, you guys remember Sisyphus, Greek mythology? Sisyphus was this guy who was a total trickster. He was constantly tricking people. He loved to deceive people. In fact, he loved tricking the gods. That was one of his favorite activities. So when he died, um, Zeus got really ticked at him and decided he was going to trick him. And so for all of eternity, Sisyphus had to roll this boulder up a hill. And he had this internal unending drive. He had to get that boulder to the top of the hill. The problem was every time he got near the top, the boulder would, would roll away from him and go back down to the bottom. So he'd have to go back down to the bottom and push it back up to the hill. He did that for all of eternity. The trick that Zeus played on him was you're going to be um, lab- laboring your entire life without ever being productive. You'll be chasing something your entire life without ever being able to get the result. You will invest your life following your desires, and your desires will never be fulfilled. Is that what God was doing with the law? Basically saying, here, I'm going to, I know this is how you're naturally wired, so I'm going to just give you a God-ordained system to follow, knowing you'll never be able to get the benefit. Why? Because I like to watch you fail. (laughs) Is that God sitting back and laughing at us as we're simply rolling this boulder up the hill over and over and over, failing over and over and over? The answer is no. God didn't do this for entertainment. Because here's the deal, you guys. God didn't give the Mosaic law. He didn't give the law to Israel so that they could measure up. He gave it to them so that they could get perspective. They didn't see themselves right. So God gave them the law so that they could have the gift of clarity. 
so that it can actually see themselves the right way. The Apostle Paul is a guy who wrote much of the New Testament, and he was an authority on the law. He was born a Jew, and as a young man, he was trained um, in the school of the law. And in fact, he excelled in it. He became a Pharisee. The Pharisees were kind of the the, the educators, the leaders in the, in the nation of Israel, of, of Judaism, of, of the law. And he became a Pharisee of this Pharisee, which meant that he was actually a teacher of the teachers. He was, he was one of those guys that, that uh, you know, 50 years later, people would be quoting, right? He was that guy. He was so influential, so knowledgeable of the law that, that people were going to be quoting this guy. Well, he had a, a dramatic encounter with Jesus. Jesus one day shows up in a, in a, in a blinding light and basically kicks him off his donkey. And um, when he comes to, he realizes, um, wow, Jesus actually rose from the dead, right? And, and I've been, he's been actively persecuting the followers of Christ. And he's like, if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. And so he pulled back and he restudied his complete understanding of the law. And, and, and we see that in his letters in the New Testament. He wrote one letter to the church of Rome. We call it Romans. And, and the book of Romans is 16 incredible chapters of, of basically Paul exploring how the gospel makes sense from a legal perspective, from a, from a global kind of a philosophical legal perspective. How can God justify sinners? How can God declare someone who's condemned as right? And, and in that, he explores the role of the law, the Mosaic law in that process. So I want to take a look at a few verses to kind of pull this theme out a little bit as we look at this. So take a look at this. This is Romans 3.20. First thing Paul says, or not the first, but first thing I want to look at about the law. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. To be justified means to be declared right, to be made right um, in an official sense, right? When a, when a court of law says you are not guilty and they bring the gavel down. No human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law wasn't given. No, nobody will be justified by the law because that's not why it was given. Notice what it says. It was given why? For the knowledge of sin. God gave the law not to make people right, but to make them aware of their sin. Mirrors are um, our best and worst enemies, right? We love mirrors. We love mirrors, honestly, that lie to us. Those are the ones that are the best. Um, you guys ever go to like the Funhouse Museums where they have those really weird mirrors and, and you get in front of it? What do you do invariably? You find the place where you can stand where you look the best, right? Where all your curves are in the right place, right? Guys, your big broad shoulders, narrow ways, look at me, right? We like those things. Well, here's the deal, you guys. We all have an image of ourselves. We all like to see ourselves. And the image we have of ourselves is a Funhouse mirror image, it's a photoshopped image. It's not reality. What we do is when we look at ourselves, we, we exaggerate our strengths and we minimize our weaknesses. We like to look at the areas we're really good, where we're really strong, where we really succeed. And those are the areas we like to make biggest in our vision. And then we look at the areas where we're, we're not very good, we're weak, we're maybe even ashamed of, and we kind of minimize those. We don't focus on those as much. And that gives us the opportunity then to compare our strengths with other people's weaknesses, that, that cosmic scale thing, right? Because if I'm better than you, um, that makes me feel good about myself, right? If I can look at me, I'm, I'm not, at least I don't do that. At least I'm not like that. At least, at least I am, you know, so we're constantly comparing ourselves 
our false image of ourselves with, with our overly um, condemning image of others. And, and that's our way of, of seeing ourselves. See, God gave the law to be a true mirror. It's not distorted. See, when you look at the Ten Commandments and you really look at the nature of your heart compared to just those ten rules and your inability to keep them, it shows you something about yourself that you probably don't want to see. Even the best person, the person that we would call a good person, is going to be a failure if that's the standard. Why? Because no matter how much you control your behavior, you cannot change your heart. No matter how well you cage in those impulses that you know are wrong and are evil, you can't get rid of them. So maybe you're incredibly self-controlled, never let those things out of the box, but you know as well as everyone else that you just can't get rid of them. They're still there. So law comes in, and and it basically gives us a knowledge, a clarity about how we are before God, right? It kind of blows the whole thing out of the water of, well, he's a really good person, or or, I'm just trying to be a nice person, as if being nice were somehow the same thing as being holy, right? Being polite and and, and generally a a good guy at a party, people that like to be around, as if that were the same thing as actually um, glorifying God, right? So God gave Israel, these laws, to give them this clarity. Let me give you this illustration to help you kind of picture what's going on here. Um, I have a friend who um, was driving home, and and as he was driving home, he drove into his neighborhood, and there was a stench, um, just a real stink. And um, it's a really not a pleasant feeling when you smell a lot of raw sewage in your neighborhood. It's even worse when it gets stronger the closer you get to your house. And then you pull into your driveway, and you're like, holy cow, I think this is the hub, right? I think this is the place it's all emanating from, right? That's a bad feeling. Goes into his house, overwhelming stink. And uh, so he's looking all around the house. Finally, they go open up the door to the basement, flip on the light. What do they see? About eight inches of raw sewage, like raw sewage, toilet paper. It's all just down there, right? He had just finished his basement. He had put the drywall up himself. He had taped it. He had painted it. The kid's bedroom was down there. The kid's toys were down there, right? And floating in the raw sewage at the bottom of the steps is one of the toys, short-circuiting because of the sewage. It's a little Bob the Builder, and it's flashing and glowing and saying, can we fix it? Yes, we can. Like, no joke. That's, That's what happened, right? I think that's how God saw the nation of Israel as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God said, hey, if I give you these rules, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, we can do that. Can we fix it? Yeah, we can do that. They didn't realize they were floating face down in the cesspool of their own sin. They had no clarity about how broken they really were. They had no clarity about how great their need really was. They thought they just needed to clean up a little bit, and they're down there washing in the sewage. They just have no clarity. The law comes in to give clarity, to show us the true nature of our hearts. 
And how does it do that? It does it by actually increasing the sin. Take a look at this verse. This is Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to what? What's the word? Say it out loud. Thank you. I'll make sure you're awake. Uh, The law came in to increase the trespass. Now let that sink in for a minute. Did God give the Ten Commandments to make people more moral? Did God give the Ten Commandments to to make them better, nicer, more well-rounded people? The law came in to increase the trespass, but where their sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, it's interesting to me, our culture gets so weird on this thing, man. People want these Ten Commandments. They want them hung in the courthouses and in the schools and all the public places. Why? Because when people read them, they're just going to be nicer people, more well-rounded people, more moral people. What does Paul say will be the result? It's not a bad result. It's actually a good result. It actually increases the sin. It actually increases the sin. God gave the law to increase people's awareness of sin by actually increasing the sin. The law wasn't given to fix the problem, you guys. The law was given to make the problem crystal clear. Even if that meant making it experientially worse for us. It didn't make it worse for God. It just made us more aware by actually increasing our awareness of the sewage of our own sin. How does the law increase sin? How does that happen? Take a look at this. This is Romans 7, 5. For while we were, li- while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is, um, this is sexually symbolic language. In this passage, Paul is actually comparing um, our life to, um, sure, thanks, Mike. Um, they're actually, sorry, they're actually comparing our life to um, a marriage, right? Think about it this way, you guys. Um, God created us with strong desires. Strong desires are not evil. The body is not evil, right? There's a platonic lie. There's that whole philosophy that basically says that matter is evil and spirit is good. And there was a whole Christian movement that came out of that where people started despising the body and they would beat themselves up and deny themselves pleasures if that would make themselves more pleasurable. God's the one that gave us these desires, right? These desires are in fact gifts. God gave us strong desires for food so we would eat good food. God gave us strong desires for, for, for drink so that we would drink good drink. God gave us strong desires for sex so that we would enjoy good sex, right? These are gifts from God. But the way God designed it was that these strong desires would take us to the gift. And then through the gift, we would see the giver of the gift and give him glory and thanks and gratitude. We would enjoy the, the joy. He would get the glory. What's happened is that since the great rebellion, we no longer go to the gift and see the giver. We go to the gift as if, he, if that were the giver. We get the joy and then we try to keep the glory. That's what it means by the law comes in to our sinful passions. The passions themselves are not bad. They've just been bent or perverted to things that won't ultimately satisfy because they no longer go ultimately to the giver. They go to the gift and then come back to us. The law comes in and arouses these passions and wakes them up. And instead of of us going 
to the gift and to the giver, which bears fruit of life, the fullness of life, the joy of life, a greater experience of life. They now go to the gift and back to us. And the fruit is death, separation from life, greater alienation from God, greater shame and guilt and and personal condemnation. See, the law comes in and wakes up these sinful passions. When the law comes in, it's like a kid coming up to, to a cage where a lion's asleep, right? And that kid takes a pole and just starts poking that lion. That lion wakes up and it suddenly is aroused into passionate anger. It was dormant and sleeping before. We have all kinds of sinful impulses within us that are dormant and sleeping. They're there. But the law comes in and wakes them up. The rules come in and wake them up. And when they wake up, man, all of a sudden you're like, I didn't even know I could think about that. Mm. I didn't even know I could be attracted to that. Didn't even know that I could find that one. Ooh, hey, now I'm, you know, it's like it wakes these things up. And all of a sudden you're desiring things you never desired and moving in directions you never moved. Now, this always made sense to me because the way I'm wired, when I, when I became a believer and I started studying this, this made sense to me because um, I am wired to be a rule breaker. Some of you are like me. Um, when you give me a rule, my first impulse is, what are you trying to keep from me? Right? If I'm walking along and there's a do not walk on the grass sign, I'm walking on the grass. Right? I want to know why that grass is so great, you're telling me I can't walk on it. I need to walk on that grass. Right? If there's a door that says, don't look in here, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That provokes. I would have never thought about looking behind that door. I didn't care about that door. You put that sign on that door. I have to look, right? I am a rule breaker. When you put a rule in front of me, I am provoked to break it. If you tell me I can only go 55 miles an hour on this huge straightaway through the middle of Arizona, sorry, it's not going to happen. You know what I'm saying? And I thought everyone was wired like me. I thought everyone was naturally a rule breaker because that's, you know, we tend to think that other people are like us. And then I met other people who aren't rule breakers. They're rule keepers. How in the world does uh, the law provoke them to sin? Go ahead and throw that image up. Uh, This is, um, let that sink in for a minute. That's me and we were on a family trip to Georgia. And um, this was actually in Tennessee, um, I think at, at, Rock City? I think it was at Rock City. See Rock City. You see those signs everywhere. Well, you're walking along up there, and there's this wonderful path that just disappears behind the bend of a rock, but there's a gate in front of it that says employees only. That's kind of like saying members only. You know what I'm saying? Like only special people get to go back here. All right, I just told you. What am I going to do? I'm walking that path. I need to find out what's around that bend. What's so beautiful or so dangerous? that? And I'm going to take my kids with me, right? And as you can tell, Esther is incredibly happy about it. Um, <laughs> But that's, that's, that's how I'm provoked. Meanwhile, um, there are things going on in their hearts and in my wife's heart because not everybody in my family is a rule breaker. Some people in my family are rule keepers. How does the law provoke a rule keeper to sin? Because when you, if you're a rule keeper, you know this. If you see a sign that says, don't walk on the grass, you're not walking on the grass. You will walk five miles out of your way not to walk on that grass, Right? You, you, will, you will sacrifice the afternoon, sweat in the sun, get all the way around to the other side and be like, yes, I kept that rule. How does the law provoke you to sin? What do you do when you get to the other side? Well, first of all, you feel incredibly good about yourself because you just kept that rule. 
And more than likely, you're looking out at the lawn at all the people like me who are laying on it. And you're thinking, where's the policeman? Right? They deserve a ticket. Right? And you get no greater joy in that moment than to watch, actually watch a policeman walk through that field and hand out tickets. You would, you'd be like, yes, I am justified. I am right. How does the law provoke you to sin? It provokes you to self-righteousness. The law always provokes sin. You guys listen to me. Rules don't fix problems. They provoke sin. If you break it, you'll feel condemned. If you keep it, you'll feel self-righteous. Neither one of those are life. Those are both the fruit of death. So the law was given to give us clarity about ourselves and and the nature of our hearts. The law was given to um, give us that clarity by actually provoking sin. Here's the thing. I mean, with those Ten Commandments, the harder you work to keep those Ten Commandments, the more aware you're going to become of how lousy you are keeping them. The the more white-knuckled grip you get on trying to do this thing, the more you're going to fail. Because God wanted that clarity about our sin to lead to despair. Isn't that good news? God wanted us to despair, but in a good way. What He wants us to do is despair of our hope in ourselves. He wants us to despair of our confidence and our ability to solve our own problem. He wants us to despair of our self-salvation project. He wants us to lose hope in ourselves. Now, when you get to that point, you guys, and we get to that point often, whether you're a Christ follower or not, and you're like, this doesn't even make sense. How can that make sense to a Christ follower? This is a human problem, not, not a Christian problem. We're all doing this. Um, whether your, your, your righteousness is obeying the Ten Commandments or whether your righteousness is, is recycling and driving a Prius. Um, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're looking at that makes you worthwhile, makes you better than others, makes you, you're going to find yourself habitually failing even of your own standards. And, and when you keep them, you're going to find yourself feeling incredibly self-righteous, just like the Prius dude judging the Hummer dude as they're driving down the highway, right? Um, we, it's just a natural condition of the human heart. What are our choices? Well, most of the time we do one of two things. We either try harder or give up. We try harder by, by grabbing onto the rules and applying ourselves more diligently or maybe even throwing in more rules. <laughs> I couldn't keep those rules. I need more rules to keep me protect those rules, right? We're going to build circles of rules, right? If I can just keep the rules far enough out, I won't break that one, and it'll keep me out here, right? So some of you are white-knuckling it, and you're just, I am going to stop doing that and start doing this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add more rules and more expectations because then somehow I will. And what you're doing is you're basically saying God is a liar. I'm not as broken as he says I am. I can do it. I can fix myself. I can clean myself. I, I can do this. And I desperately need to tip the cosmic scales in my direction so I can feel good about myself. It is pride that drives us to do that. We don't want the humiliation of acknowledging we're unable to do it. I want to be the captain of my own ship, the director of my own 
faith. And so I work harder. And I find myself on the roller coaster of pride where I'm condemning everybody and self-condemnation when I'm condemning myself. Some of you go the opposite direction. You, you, you're followers of Christ and you're like, okay, I'm helpless to do this thing. I can't defeat this thing. I can't defeat sin in my life. I can't win, so what am I going to do? Huh. I'm just going to give in. I'm going to follow these passions. I'm going to give myself over to them fully. And again, I can give you both Christian and non-Christian examples of this, right? People that are basically like, look, I'm tired of the division, the dividedness of my heart. I'm tired of all the struggle. So I'm just going to give myself over to my desires because I think that's what I really need to be so happy. Because what we really need to be happy is to fully indulge our desires, right? Right? All you got to do is look at any drug addict and know that that is true. They're fully given over to the desires of their heart and they are the happiest people walking the face of the earth, right? What I want you to see is that both of these paths are, in fact, the same path. We, we call them biblically moralism and licentiousness. Moralism is where I'm, I'm living by a set of rules, and as long as I obey them and keep them, I am good and I'm okay. And if I can't keep them, I just need more rules. And if you can't keep them, well, you're just a failure. You need to try harder. Right? And that's honestly been the message of the church for a long time because the church left the gospel and has moved to this idea. You, you believe in Jesus to be saved and then you get down to the hard work of, of fixing yourself, right? How do you get better? You just try harder. Or <laughs> in a more modern format, it's basically Jesus forgives you, so just go live your life anyway. Give yourself over to whatever drives your heart because in the end you're going to be forgiven if it doesn't work out. Anyway, here's the deal. Both of those are paths of death. And what do I mean by that? Both of those separate you from shalom. They separate you from purpose and joy and wholeness. They, they make you more isolated, more condemned, more shameful, more... Uh, you're turning the gift into an idol and turning away from the giver of the gift who is the one who can meet your deepest desires. Both of those paths lead to death. So here's the deal. The law was given to us to show us how far we've fallen but as we despair, the purpose of the despair is actually to give us a glimpse of hope. God doesn't want us to despair and then leave us in the pit. He wants us to despair so that we can have hope. I don't know about you guys. I'm a big fan of the Narnia. I love C.S. Lewis. Um, the White Witch, man, she has like this, this, this evil villain uh, mantra that she just loves to say at the perfect time despair and die, right? I mean, that's what she says over Aslan when he's on the table and he's about, in this knowledge, despair, I've just robbed you of all hope and now I'm just gonna kill you, right? And that's my greatest joy, despair and die. That's not what God says. God says despair and live. It is important to despair. You, you have to come to a point where you no longer trust yourself. You're no longer confident in your ability. You're no longer looking to your ability to solve your own problem, your ability to make yourself right, your ability to make yourself feel good about yourself, to feel whole about yourself. You need to despair of that, but in that despair, look up and see hope. Because God's point in showing us reality is to open our eyes to his solution to our problem. There's a part of the story that I, I haven't told you, and it comes in later chapters. And Moses, after the people say yes to the Ten Commandments, after they say yes to the law, Moses goes back up the mountain and spends about 40 days up there with God. And, and during that time, God carves the Ten Commandments into stone with his, with his own finger. And I can't imagine what that whole experience was like. But, but 40 days he's up there, and he's coming down with these, these two tablets with the Ten Commandments. And think about that for an age. It, it, cold stone. 
That's the nature of law. Unchanging, carved in stone, cold, no relationship, just expectations. No warmth, just performance. He's coming down the mountain with these cold stones, this is the law. And as he's coming down the mountain, he hears this ruckus in the camp. And he's like, oh, no, is there a battle? Did somebody attack us while I was up there? And he comes around the corner and he realizes that it's not a battle, it's a party. (laughs) They got bored. While he was on top of the mountain, they got bored. And so what did they do? They took all their gold, they melted it down, they cast themselves a golden calf. And they were singing songs to the golden calf about how the golden calf had delivered them from Egypt. The ink wasn't even dry on the contract yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the tablets had just come down and they're already breaking commandment number one and two. <laughs> Bad news. And Moses takes those commandments, throws them on the ground and shatters them. And it gets loaded with symbolism. There's a lot there. I mean, first of all, it shows the inability of the Israelites and in fact, the human heart to keep the commandments. They broke the covenant before it was even finished being written. When, when Moses shattered those, those stones, it was basically showing that the human heart is unable to measure up. It's unable to keep its side of the covenant. We can't do what we've promised to do. We will break the covenant. I think this, the other thing that it shows us is, in fact, the wrath of God toward our breaking the covenant. When Moses comes down, he doesn't just break them. And, he's angry. And his anger reflects the anger of God. We don't like to talk about an angry God. That's not popular in our culture today. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God. But, but when he shatters those commandments, that is an expression of the wrath of God. And it is perfectly appropriate. I mean, think about it, you guys. What just happened is similar to, to a dude going and getting married. And between him saying his vows and kissing his bride and his going on his honeymoon with his bride later that night, he checks out to go hook up with a hooker. You want to tell me that bride wouldn't have been justified to have wrath toward that husband? The relational violation, the lack of trust, the broken promise. Our sin breaks God's heart. We were not created to worship false gods. We were created to worship him. And he receives the glory when we do and we receive the joy. And when we rob him of his glory, it is, we are robbing of intimacy. We are robbing him of the joy of relationship. We are robbing him of the benefit of his creation. It represents the wrath of God toward our sin. But it represents something else too. There was only one person that ever walked the face of the earth that actually fulfilled all 10 of those commands. When Jesus was born, he was not born with the sin nature of Adam. He was born sinless and he lived a sinless life. He's the only man to ever walk the face of the earth, giving God glory like a human is supposed to give God glory. He fully honored and obeyed God in all things. He fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. And yet he was broken on our behalf. He was our substitute. God took the one man who obeyed and crushed him so that we could be forgiven. When we see those commandments shattered on the ground, we see Christ crucified on the cross. Our substitute, the righteous one, dying in our place for our sins so we could be forgiven 
justice was served, the price was paid, but it wasn't paid by us. It was paid by our substitute. So we see, even in the giving of the law and in the shattering of the tablets, the promised grace of God. That he was not going to abandon us to the cesspool of our sin. He was not going to abandon us to the darkness of our hearts. He was not going to abandon us to the death that we deserved. He was going to step in. He was going to pay the price. He was going to win our hearts. Now think about this, you guys. That message right there, that God loved you enough that he sent his son to die for you and rise again for you. That Jesus lived on mission knowing he was going to ultimately give everything up because you had nothing to give. He was going to become your sin even though he was the holiness of God. That has more power to change your heart than a thousand rules. You let that sink into your heart, it will change you. It will change you. It won't just guard the sinfulness of your heart. It won't just cage in the desires of your heart. It will change the desires of your heart. Grace can do what law can't. And law is designed to lead us to grace. And when we embrace grace, when we come not to the cold tablets of performance, but to the warm arms of our Abba who reaches out to embrace us because his son was crucified in our place, that embrace melts our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Makes us responsive once again to the giver of the gifts. So we want him more than the gifts that he's given us. It provokes us out of our self-righteousness into confidence in Christ's righteousness, out of our self-salvation to rest in God's salvation, out of our self-deception and self-confidence into a self-awareness and dependence on His enabling grace. And instead of condemning ourselves when we don't measure up, we see Christ condemned and we're filled with hope. And instead of being filled with pride every time we obey, we are filled with humility because we realize the only reason we can obey is the grace of God. And we move forward in life in the humble confidence of the gospel, embracing and experiencing life instead of passionately pursuing things that can only give death. God gave us the law to give us clarity. And out of that clarity to lead us to despair and out of that disparity to fill our vision with hope. 